Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a live recording of Dragon Talk. My name is Greg Tito, and I'm joined by no one. No one is here. It is just me today speaking to you. Shelley Mazenoble is uh, in sunny uh, upstate New York with her husband, uh, who also sometimes fills in here, and uh, the other one who fills in, Mr. Trevor Kidd, uh, is busy. So it is just I talking to today, Mr. Matthew Mercer, uh, about what it was like filming uh, Force Gray, Lost City of Omu. And uh, those of you guys who are listening to this on the podcast level, uh, that is happening starting on July 31st. That's right, 5 p.m. Pacific time every Monday. You'll be able to check in with a new episode of Force Gray, Lost City of Omu. Uh, Dungeon Master Matt Mercer, who we'll talk to today, uh, as well as Joe Manganello, Deborah Ann Wall, Dylan Sprouse, Utkar Shambudkar, and Brian Passain. And uh, we'll also have an episode with Dylan Sprouse coming up very soon. So check out that tonight uh, at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, you can also get Twips, Twitch subscriptions for the D&D channel. Uh, you can get some custom emotes and some badges, and we're going to be adding a whole bunch of new fun subscriber-only stuff there. Definitely is always good for ad-free viewing of stuff on Twitch. Uh, but And if you're watching all the Dragon Talk live recordings, it's pretty good. It's pretty good value. It's only 5 bucks, so get your stuff in there. Also is Neverwinter Tomb of Annihilation. It came out last week on PC. Xbox One and PS4 versions will be out very much later, but this is your first chance to jump into and actually play and experience the Tomb of Annihilation storyline on your own, not just watching all these fun people play uh, tidbits of it uh, before the adventure comes out on September 19th. So it may uh, love Neverwinter. It's a free-to-play. You can totally get into it. It's at playneverwinter.com to find out more, Um, and uh, we'll be announcing soon when it will be out on the console, so that uh, should be coming very soon. We as kids, Icons of the Realms, uh, they have their Tomb of Annihilation minis also now in game stores. A new slew of uh, 40 new sculpts, I believe, um, uh, including an incentive pack which has the Green Devil Mask, this thing right here in the flesh, or in the plastic at the very least. Um, so those are in-game stores now. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get to your game stores. I, we don't actually have copies of them here yet. Usually we get them uh, about a week or two after they're in store. So I'll be bringing out, uh, showing everybody what some of these miniatures look like. They look pretty darn cool. Hascon is something that Dar- Dragon Talk listeners should love hearing about. Uh, if, especially if you're in the New England area, come down and hang out with us in Providence, Rhode Island, September 8th through the 10th. I'll be there. Trevor Kidd will be there. Mike Merles will be there. Chris Lindsay will be there. And Matt Mercer will be there. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, with him during this interview. Only a little bit, though, because we don't want to spoil anything. Um, that game will not be streamed. Uh, he might be playing in a live game uh, that will only be available to Hascon employees. We're still not Hascon employees. Hascon ticket holders. We'll get to that more in a little bit, but that's just a little bit of a tease. Um, and what else is going on? Uh, D&D Beyond is always a thing. It's coming out August 15th um, in, 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 in the reels. Uh, you'll be able to find out uh, more about it by going to dndbeyond.com. Beta phases are uh, two and three are all live. You can make characters using all the basic rules. It's a great uh, tool and a compendium for a quick looking up of spells, uh, looking up of monsters, uh, and magic items can all be done uh, on there in addition to creating your character with all those things. So definitely I would check that out, and when it gets out live on August 15th, take a look at it. 
Um, as far as streaming goes, we got so much fun stuff happening. D and D news is on Tuesdays at three thirty, where I go through some of these announcements and I tell you about the happenings of the day. Four p.m. Dice camera action uh, with Chris Perkins is also on Tuesdays, and then Maze Arcana Fury's Reach with Satine Phoenix Dungeon Mastering is right after that. On Wednesdays, we got Misclicks D and D Risen. Uh, they're back with a new episode this week, uh, as well as Maze Arcana Fury's Reach with Rudy uh, at the DM. Uh, I'll be talking to Girls Guts Glory later on this afternoon, including uh, Sujata Day, who we haven't spoken to yet. She plays the role of Ichabod, uh, definitely the, the the comedy linchpin of that whole group, uh, so I can't wait to pick her brain. Acquisitions Incorporated, the C-Team is happening uh, uh, over at Hyper RPG. We'll be hosting them, as always, at 3.30 p.m. on Thursdays, and uh, hey, we'll host some Critical Role uh, at 7 p.m. on Thursday. They took a little bit of a break for San Diego Comic-Con, but they're coming back into it, and we're going to talk to Matt Mercer today on this here interview uh, about what it was like putting up all the stuff uh, in their source book for uh, his setting. So that's going to be pretty fantastic. He worked with some amazing people over at um, uh, Green Ronin, uh, including Chris Premis and Steve Kenson, as well as James Hake, uh, who uh, we also had on the podcast recently to talk about all this stuff that's been going on there. Um, that's it for as far as uh, crazy announcements are on. Shelly's not here, so I'm not going to talk about Betrayal on Baldur Gate coming out on October 6th or Access and Allies, the anniversary edition, even though my Russians need to make a really big attack into Poland if I'm going to get the national objective uh, and uh, 10 me IPC swing, but, uh, you know, we'll get to that in a later podcast. Um, so, yeah, I think we should just throw this to a, a segment. You want to throw it to a segment? We'll do some bings and some bongs, and then we'll call it Mr. Matt Mercer. We'll make it a thing. All right, bing bong. Welcome to another segment of Lore You Should Know, where we delve into some fun Dungeons & Dragons lore to infect it into your games. Uh, And today we're going to go into, well, first off, I'm Greg Tito. Hello. And I'm joined by... Chris Perkins. And uh, we are without Matt Cernet today because he is on vacation, uh, but he will be returning uh, for lore coming forward. And we'll do our best... Uh, to survive without him. Uh, but today we're going to delve into stuff that's near and dear to uh, uh, Chris's heart, especially as we deal with Tomb of Annihilation that's coming out on September 19th. Uh, and uh, it is the subject of uh, strange monsters that you may not find anywhere else but in the jungles of Chult, as well as uh, some strange deities, which we have never yes. before discovered. Yes, uh, brand new. Yes. Or brand old, one of the Brand old. Well, let's get yeah. to them at the, at the end of this little bit of a segment. But what are some other strange monsters uh, that uh, may have been pulled from old lore from, from Chult, but then also just made up a whole cloth for, for this adventure? So uh, these the, the topic of the trickster gods and the topic of the monsters I'm going to discuss are sort of intertwined. Okay. So I might skip back and forth in... In talking about, I mean, oh, okay. the trickster gods could come up in like the next thirty seconds, but and here they are. <laughs> but basically, um, when we sat down to uh, begin preliminary brainstorming for the Tomb of Annihilation story, one of the ideas we had was that the tomb itself, built by one creep, Aserak, uh, was originally created to contain, like, tombs contain dead things. That's why they're called tombs, right? So one of the questions we had to ask is, well, if, a, if this is not a Sararak's tomb where he houses his own remains, whose tomb is it? And the answer to that question was we came up with this idea that when a Sararak first came to Chult and kind of landed in Omu, um, 
he found that the Chalton people there were worshipping nine deities. These deities had come to them after their primary greater god, Ubtau, basically left. In an earlier segment, we talked about Ubtau and right. how he kind of abandoned the Chalton people, or rather they kind of abandoned him and then he uh, super abandoned them. <laughs> Double secret probate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, abandoned uh, them in Mesra. So uh, them feeling the vacuum of faith um, were very quick to take on these nine beings who came to them and said, we are gods, we will happily replace your gods and teach you how to do amazing things. And they did because they're smart. Were but these actual deities or were they? No, okay. they were false deities. Uh, they had taken on the forms of creatures that they'd encountered in the jungle to sort of please and allay the Chalton people. Okay. And then they did teach the Chalton people things, but their powers were revealed to be very lacking when Asarak showed up and killed them all. Ah. And he then committed their remains into the tomb. And over the years... The vestiges of their spirits, which were also trapped in the tomb, have existed there in sort of an underground purgatory. Uh, they were trapped inside of magic items, basically, and have been locked away down there waiting for somebody to come into contact with them. Okay. Now, these nine trickster gods, each of them had a different form um, that didn't necessarily reflect their demeanor. It's like, okay, one of the trickster gods ran into a Zorbo which is a jungle-dwelling koala bear-like creature, and said, I'm going to take that form. That's me. He didn't think that, you know, what, what, what is the nature of the Zorbo? What is the alignment of the Zorbo? What does Zorbo want? He says, ah, that's me. And then, poof, I'm now a Zorbo. He became Zorbo. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, all of the gods had a similar experience. They chose creatures that didn't necessarily reflect their attitudes or disposition, uh, but uh, they just liked the forms, and that's how they presented themselves to the Chalton people. Many of these creatures that they chose are things that trace their origins back to the earliest days of D&D. Because one of the things that I and Adam and Pendleton Ward and Richard Witters did. Adam Lee. Adam Lee. Right. Sorry. Adam Lee is a co-writer. He works with me on story stuff. Richard Witters is our senior art director and Pendleton Ward is the creator of Adventure Time, who we brought in as a consultant. The four of us sat down and we flipped through old books and things looking for creatures that you would or could find in Chalt and that these trickster gods could have emulated. And we picked nine. And actually, the first nine that we picked were not the nine that we ended up with. Oh, okay. Some of them survived from the very beginning. Others we swapped out. For instance, one of the creatures that we picked right from the outset was the Ixitzichitl. Ixitzichitl. Yes. Very yeah. good. Yeah. And for those who don't know, that's a first edition monster that's basically a sentient ray like a stingray or a manta ray. Oh, okay. Not like um, a ray of light. but Correct. It, yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it lives in water and in, in oceans, actually, deep oceans, and it's very malevolent. They're chaotic evil. But Yes, I remember these now. We decided that given the nature of Chalt, they probably wouldn't dwell in the jungle proper, and even if they did, they'd be very confined to the water. Yeah. You wouldn't see an Ixitzichitl dancing across the land. Um, so pff, out that went. Another monster that we had picked and, and chosen that didn't ultimately get carried forward into the final nine was the Sturge. Mm. And uh, I don't remember the exact reason for that. We could have gone with the Sturge. In fact, I love Sturges. Um, but ultimately, I think we decided, we sort of looked at the number of flying monsters and things like that. We tried to strike a balance between different kinds of monsters. Right. So we didn't want something that was too similar. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, but the, the ones that we landed on were included the Almirage which is a unicorn-horned bunny rabbit, ah. which originally appeared in the first edition Fiendfolio. 
Another that we landed on was the frog hemoth. Good old frog hemoth. Yes, big old frog hemoth, which appeared in Expedition to the Barrier Peaks and later in the Monster Manual 2 for first edition. Classic fan favorite monster. There's a whole YouTube video about the frog hemoth that you've got to check out if you haven't seen it. Um, it's good stuff. Uh, yeah. And uh, frog hemoth. <laughs> and uh, so that was another one. Um, and, and ironically, one of the, the, the god who assumed that form, the trickster god who assumed that form, is one of the nicer gods. So that's kind of fun. Oh, he's, he's a little bit evil yeah. though now because of the form that he took on? Nope. Nope. No? Nope. He's a, he's a happy frog hemoth. Interesting. Or he was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but actually, he's, all of the trickster gods have some serious emotional problems and, <laughs> and personality flaws, which is probably why they all died. Um, and it also explains why they never got along very well. So some of these were not from like native Chult monsters in a way, but they were just like monsters. They were that monsters were... that inhabited the jungles of Chult, but not necessarily their lineage is bound to Chult. Like you encounter frog hemoths in other places. They're yeah. sort of scattered throughout the cosmos, but... Uh, they're not Chult-specific. Same thing with the Almirage. It's not a Chult-specific monster. Uh, in fact, the Almirage of Chult were brought to Chult by uh, merchant traders from Zakara. Interesting. The nation, the Arabic nation to the south. So it almost is like an uh, uh, invasive species. Yes. To, to yeah, show. it is an invasive species, the Almirage. Interesting. Um, another creature from the Fiend Folio that appears um, that, that one of the gods took the form of is called a Jakuli which is a giant snake with amazing chameleon powers. So it can basically look invisible when up against another surface or object. Okay. Uh, it has the other scary, absolutely horrific uh, ability to basically spring from trees like javelins and stab you. Stab you? It can make its head uh, <laughs> and tongue so sharp that it can mm-hmm. puncture flesh? What? So suddenly trees are throwing javelins, like snake javelins at you, and you're going, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, so... Um, Need some like uh, yep. snakes to sticks uh, another, spell. Another fiend folio monster uh, that gets a lot of attention in Tomb of Violation because of its ties to the trickster gods is the Kamadan, which um, is a leopard like creature with snakes coming out of its shoulders. Yes, which six. I've, I've seen six the uh, snakes. Uh, um, miniatures from WizKids. Yes. Uh, the Tomb of Annihilation minis. And uh, the most recent cover of Dragon Plus has an homage to the Kamadan by it having does. the head with the snakes on it. Yes. Yes. So the, have you seen that cover? It's move, it moves. It moves, yes. It's a slinky cover. It's animated. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, and then the Grung. Chris Lindsay's favorite. Chris Lindsay's favorite monster. Uh, which also appear. Uh, another what color is, uh, is, is the trickster god Grung? Is it we colorless? Don't a- we don't actually say. Um, Interesting. Uh, we don't say. It's, it's colorless, like colorless mana. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, another creature from uh, the Classic Monster Manual 2 that very few people know about or is going to strike a chord probably is the Ebli, E-B-L-I-S. It's a intelligent evil crane about 10 feet tall. Whoa. Because cranes are, are, are crazy-looking creatures. Yes. Yeah, right? so very tall, slender, bird-like thing, big, long, pointed beak. Yeah. Yeah, and Ebli are, uh, not only are they evil, um, but they do have sort of these prehensile claws, long legs with claws on the end, and they can build stuff. Like, some of them actually build huts for themselves and live in them. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, Do they have a language? Are they able to Yeah, to they speak? can communicate. Uh, they also are spellcasters. What? They have learned to cast spells. Using their yeah wow a spellcrafting ten foot tall evil crane that's 
pretty horrifying. Yeah. Because I, I don't know if you've been around big birds, but like swans or something like that. They're, yeah, they're, they're their grace can belies, they're belie their meanness. They will yeah. come after you. Yeah. yeah. So I, they're extremely graceful, but also very duplicitous and treacherous creatures. And they often um, pair up with other creatures more powerful than them for mutual protection sometimes serving them as uh, advisors or servants. It's really, they're really quite terrifying. Um, huh. And then uh, another creature uh, that is brought forward from the original monster manual is the Sioux monster. The Sioux monster. S-U hyphen monster. In, uh, in the monster manual uh, and in editions since, mm-hmm. it is basically described as an oversized monkey uh, that likes to hang by its tail and kill things with its claws while hanging upside down. So it just rakes things to pieces with its claws. But more fearsome than its claw attacks is that it's a psionic creature. It can emit blasts of psionic energy that stun you, so you just stand there helpless while it tears you to ribbons. And the uh, the trickster god who uh, decided that he wanted to be take on the form of the Sioux monster, his name is Wongo, and he is a psychopath. Um, he got a form that actually very much befits his uh, his temperament. Um, and uh, if you run into him, uh, he is just batshit insane. Interesting. Um, now, so, the, yeah, the monkey connection is very odd because, you know, you want to think, oh, it's a cute little monkey. No, uh, but these are no, not at all. No. Because there are, you know, uh, also... Uh, um, what is the uh, the cute monsters uh, that are? Oh, I'm thinking of the Almirage, actually. The flying monkey is the, also in yes, uh, Chult. The flying and, monkey is, and they're very cute and looking, and they got beautiful feathered wings and all that. Uh, whereas Sioux monsters are psychic devils, basically. Can you tell the difference on sight? Oh yes. Okay. Yeah, one has big feathered wings, the other doesn't, and the other is hanging from his tail, raking out your eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so That's you might you be able to look at them and tell them a little bit different. I didn't know if one was yeah. uh, uh, trying to camouflage and it as the other. Sioux monsters are smart enough that they're, in, they're because they're intelligent. Uh, they can work together. They conspire. They can gang up on you and do all kinds of crazy stuff. So um, now the reason we chose nine trickster gods is because in the D&D game there are nine alignments. That's true. And each trickster god belongs to a different alignment. What that means is, is that they, that there are, with the exception of the neutral one, which I'll talk about momentarily, there are always two trickster gods that are diametrically opposed Mm. to each other. And um, that can create some interesting situations if both come into play at the same time. Right, because... Things might uh, right. uh, not be able to be happening because of their... Exactly. They will attempt to thwart one another or get under each other's skin, and that can be a real problem for the party in this adventure. Got now, it. the neutral one has sort of served as a buffer often between these warring couples. There are four warring couples, and then the one at the center is sort of trying to keep everybody on an even keel. And that god's name is Unk. Unk. And she is the oldest of the lot, and probably the wisest, but most sort of contemplative and indecisive. And she decided to take the form of a flail snail. <laughs> like you and, do when you're indecisive. Right, which is another first edition fiend folio monster that has, been, that has appeared in other editions since that basically is a mind-your-own-business monster. It, it doesn't typically threaten people unless you get up to it. And when you do, the first thing it will do to discourage you is blast you with scintillating light emanating from its uh, pearlescent shell. Mm. 
And if that doesn't discourage you, it will then um, club you to death with these tentacles that sprout from its head that have mace-like ends. And it just boom, 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 will beat you into submission with them. And a flail snail is not small. It, its shell is about 10 feet tall at its highest point. Um, so uh, they're, they're like giant boulder-sized creatures. Now, the one saving grace is they're slow. Yeah. Uh, so you, have, you, you don't have any problem running away from one. Um, just don't get cornered by one, an angry one. And they don't generally want to attack you. No, not generally. They're but. easily threatened. They feel easily threatened by other creatures, and so they will react. Um, but generally speaking, they're passive. But there were some older edition rules about uh, harvesting that shell. Yes, and in fact, in 5th edition, um, in fiend folios were updated recently for the Volo's Guide <coughs> to Monsters and given new art. And in the Volo's Guide entry on flail snails, we talk about their shells specifically because they have a, those shells have a legacy in D&D of being valuable. Yeah. And we talk in a sidebar in Volo's Guide about the value of the shells and what they can be used to make, uh, including things like a robe of scintillating colors, mm. uh, which is a magic item in D&D with a long and storied history. Um, Where and, they was always linked, the robe of scintillating colors and the... And the Shell? Uh, I, I don't we, know if that was meant. I don't think there, that was mentioned specifically in the original um, incarnation of the creature, but it's come. I think it was first. That first came up in like fourth edition or third edition. I can't remember. Fourth okay. edition. Yeah, makes sense because um, the shields was what I always always remember. Yes, yeah. were made from. Yeah, them. and the shields can be made from them, and all kinds of stuff. I think even like invisibility stuff can be made from them. Um, but anyway, uh, so that shell, or you could just sell the shell, which I think if you get one intact, which is rare, I think it's worth something like. 2,500 or 5,000 gold pieces or something like that. But so it's it, heavy because it's but, the but size it's of a boulder. awkward. Yeah. Um, uh, now, this has nothing to do with uh, the trickster gods, but it's worth mentioning that if you are looking for flail snail shells, you can find you can buy a flail snail shell or purchase one, um, not in Port Nyanzaru, but in another lesser-known establishment or another lesser-known settlement called Ahoy Hoy. Ahoy Hoy? Yes. Is that like saying hello in... Uh it is, it is, so it could be. Um, <laughs> Ahoy Hoy is a settlement of tortles. The tortles, they finally made it. Yes. So um, in Tomb of Annihilation, there's a one-paragraph description of an island on the south of Chult called the Snout of Omgar. And we don't say much about it in the product. But what we have done um, is we've created a PDF that we're going to release around the time of Tomb of Annihilation uh, exact release details to follow mm -hmm. um, that describes this island in great detail and paints it as the sort of origin place or nesting place of tortles. Oh, I see. So it's like the South uh, uh, Pacific yeah. beaches where they always go back to in order yep. to, to make exactly. and spawn. Yep. But and tortles so have that same if thing. If you want to play a tortle, this will contain rules for tortle player characters. It will also contain tortle guides and information on the tortle settlement of Ahoy Hoy where you can go and buy cool stuff that you can't get elsewhere. But you can buy a snail shell, a flail snail shell. You can buy a flail snail shell there. Interesting. So, <laughs> say, say that four times. Flail stuff. snail shell there. Uh, <laughs> Unique New yeah. York. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and so, yes, so if you're fond of turtles, there's another old monster that we've brought back for this story. Um, it traces its origins back to the early edition of the basic and expert games. It appeared in a product called the Savage Coast, Module X9, and it appeared in a book called the Creature Catalog for, for the D&D basic slash expert game. 
Excellent. I know that the uh, chortles were of hot debate uh, amongst yes. the D and D teams. Yes. Uh, what five or six months ago? And is that? Yeah, uh, we did a we did a Twitter an informal Twitter poll. We did two. Mike put up a poll asking people how much they hated turtles, and Jeremy <laughs> put up a poll asking people how much they loved turtles. <laughs> and after analyzing those results, we decided that people the number of people who loved turtles versus hated turtles was a ratio of about two to one. Oh, all right. Very scientific results uh, from those Twitter polls. Actually, there were over, I think, 3,000 respondents, so it's actually Whoa, really? pretty scientific. That's not bad. Um, yeah, scientific enough for our purposes. I know. Uh, so, yes, I sat down uh, on a couple weekends and hammered out a first draft, uh, and uh, Jeremy, Jeremy Crawford, who develops all of our mechanics, will be developing the turtle mechanics before they see the light of day. Sweet. That's awesome. I can't wait to see that. And yeah. you're thinking about that on uh, Dungeon Master's Guild or something like that? Or, or Yeah, our plan is to put it up on Dungeon Master's Guild. Um, uh, if we charge for it, we're looking to have all the money go to one of our charities. Makes sense. I love it. I wish there was like a, a, a tortoise-based uh, charity we could give that to. Yes. And for those who don't know, it will be called, fittingly enough, the Tortle Package. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here folk, uh, first, folks. Uh, you can get your Tortle Package. Uh, uh, this yeah. fall. Yeah. The this runner-up title was Tortle Annihilation, but we decided <laughs> that that was probably a little too negative sounding. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a Tomb of Annihilation supplement, an official Tomb of Annihilation supplement. I love it. Uh, so Tortles will be eligible as a player character race for people in uh, um, Adventures League. Oh, okay, great. Very important to know. That is very important to know. And uh, and we'll have all of the, uh, the, the mechanics interweaving just mm-hmm. for that reason. So perfect. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, great. Um, that is a, a good download on all the weird and fantastic beasts uh, in Chult, as well as uh, yeah. had the. the I left gods. some. I left some out too, just to surprise people when they pick up the product. That's but, always good, yeah, because yeah. you didn't list all nine. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, there are a lot more fun stuff uh, uh, to be had and discovered within Chult. Um, where can people ask you for uh, more information on? On I'm sure it's just going to be all turtles all the time. But where can they ask you? Uh, so they can reach out to me on Twitter at Chris Perkins DND. Excellent. All right, great. Well, thanks, Chris, uh, uh, for taking over and being here. Uh, and uh, if you guys want to watch our Lore You Should Know recordings live, uh, we generally do it on Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific time. For those of you listening to this in podcast form, uh, hopefully you can watch us live one day and ask maybe some questions after we do the segment. All right, thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. That was a really good segment, and I like to talk to Jeremy, Chris, or Matt. It was one of them. I'm pretty sure it was one of them. We're so far ahead on Dragon Talks and Dragon Talk segments that who knows what segment that will be. I don't, but we'll put one in, and it'll be fantabulous. Um, Please continue to give us more information on what uh, segments you'd like to hear from on Lore. You can talk to me on Twitter about that, at Greg Tito. Uh, Or if you want to throw some more uh, suggestions to to Jeremy, he's at Jeremy E. Crawford, which he might have just told you, but I'm going to tell you again. And you can ask him some fun questions there, too. So uh, without further uh, uh, brain blasting, uh, Ryan Martha's got this finger on the pulse of calling Matt Mercer. We're going to do it right about now. Hello. Hello, sir. How are you? Doing well. About yourself? Pretty good. Uh, thank you for, uh, for for calling into Dragon Talk, man. Of course, my pleasure. Always a good time hanging with you. Exactly. I was trying to get uh, uh, Utkarsh or Brian, but they're busy Hollywood folks, and uh, so you're very busy too. But I was luckily that we got in at the right window where I was like, maybe he's available. I don't know. We'll see. 
You did. You, you caught me literally when you said 3 p.m. I was like, that's like the only hour I have today. So it was meant to be. It was wow. That's like, you know, uh, 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 the stars and moons aligning perfectly for a window of light. <laughs> that's, that's a way of putting it, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I've just got the, the fact that there's going to be a solar eclipse uh, uh, in a month or so around these parts that I've been thinking about that. There you go. Preparation, are you, man. Are you guys going to do anything like that? Are you going to watch the eclipse anywhere? Uh, I, I probably should start planning for that, shouldn't I? Yeah, isn't it like August 22nd, I think? August 22nd, yeah. That will be, be just freshly back from Gen Con and probably recovering. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll try and do something for it. <laughs> I, fig- I figured that was up you and, and Marisha's alley trying to trying to get to witness that because uh, I've, I've never been near enough anywhere in the world where you could actually witness uh, an eclipse. Yeah, yeah, no, this is this is a rare thing. So I think if you have the opportunity to do it, just make sure you do it right and you research how to do it properly so you don't end up burning your eyes. <laughs> Don't take the advice of Greg Dito, uh, host of the podcast. Just stare at the sun. It's totally fine. Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it worked for Galileo, right? <laughs> Poor Galileo. <laughs> was it Galileo or it was one astronomer that went blind looking at the sun? I forget if it was him or not. I can guarantee you there were probably more than one astronomer <laughs> that went blind from looking at the sun. <laughs> It's a, it's a very dangerous <laughs> occupation. You could, the, the church could, uh, you know, excommunicate you. Uh, you know, you could be burned at the stake. You could be blinded yeah. by the sun. Yeah, you know, the, those, are, those are rougher times for a man of science, let me tell you. Who knew that being a, uh, you know, a voice actor for games and a you know, dungeon master for hire would be a, a less dangerous occupation? So far. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. The, the Internet has its own opinions, so... <laughs> that is true. So you guys, I mean, basically, when was, I was trying to think the last time we talked to you, was that before the uh, Force Gray Lost episode that we spoke? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's about six months. Always good to check in with you at least every six months. Uh, how, how, how has it been in the internet fandom? Oh, it's, it's a roller coaster, man. Um, it's, it's, it's a really exciting thing like the, to have just such an amazing community to rally around a hobby that you know, what wasn't there when I was younger. Um, yeah, being able sure. to see a new generation excited about role-playing games and an older generation coming back to them. And in the middle, you're having, you know, two, three generations of gamers all at the same table, creating new adventures. I think it's really amazing. Um, the attention's different. Um, <laughs> right, because you, you didn't always have like a, uh, uh, a peanut gallery uh, talking about every move you made as a Dungeon Master before. Definitely didn't have that before. Uh, you know, it would just, I mean, and for the most part, people are really, really cool about it. You know, people are just excited and they're invested and they want to, you know, let, let me know if I did something wrong, which is fairly common because that, that's what happens when you're a dungeon master. It is. Um, you know, so it's it's cool that people are, are invested and wanting to help out. And, and you know, then you get the, the peanut gallery here and there like, well, that was a poor choice or that was terrible. Or, that was shitty. And you're like, yeah, well, that's just your opinion, right. man. It's it, uh, when you think about it, Statler and Waldorf didn't actually, you know, make anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But but, you know, the it's, Muppets it, were it, making something. <laughs> That's true. Or but but the way they're dressed and the fact that they always had that top balcony, they probably made something a long time ago. that got oh, really, really popular. Right? Like oil baron status. They haven't had to work in 25, 30 years. <laughs> What I like it better that they're actually like ex theater people too. Like you know, they 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 they're out, they're retired, but they feel like they can still comment on the young whippersnappers that are making the theater. 
Which, to be fair, you earn that right when you become an old person, in my opinion. <laughs> so, you know, for all for all the basement grognards that that you know hate what we do for D anD D, like you you totally earn your opinion, and that's fine. Yeah, uh, I doesn't mean I don't necessarily listen to it, but you are entitled to your opinion. It's true. It's true. Uh, well, no, I, been, I I, I, I cool. see the I see the fight that you go through sometimes, and I I just wanted to say uh, thank you for continuing to to have the positive frame of mind of like. You know, exactly just like that. Like, yeah, you're valid to make those those criticisms. They're very valid. But, like, you know, the the, the performance of your game went a different way, you know? Yeah, and I, I try and, and push the fact that, that every game is unique and different in its own way. There are many things that I do when I run my games that work really well for my players but right. would work really poorly for other game tables and vice versa. There are many uh, incredibly talented dungeon masters out there that are really good at things that I'm not. And I would... I would probably not have a great time at their table or conversely, they'll do things a lot smoother than I would. I'd be like, wow, they're running this really smoothly. Every table is different and every game style and experience is different. So if you don't like the way I run my games, that's totally fine. There are your home. There's your home game, which is run exactly how you want it to be played. And there are other examples of other great streams. If you wanted to watch something else that I'm sure matches closer to your style, you know, there you don't feel you have to be shackled to my theatrical ways. It's <laughs> just the way I do it. It's a cool way, and I like that you've you've totally surfaced it. But I, you're right. Since since you guys have been on the air on Critical Role, there's been a proliferation of many other streamed shows out there. Yeah, it's been really amazing. Like incredible communities, a lot of just really genuine and talented people. A lot we had the opportunity to hang out when you guys ran your Tomb of Annihilation stream. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you for coming, by the way. Of course, thank you for having us. It was a blast. I, I, I jump at the chance to, to play in a game every now and then. Nice. Um, and to run with, with new players. The uh, the whole Girls Guts Glory crew are, are fantastic people, and it was really fun to play with them. And to watch their fledgling channel get you know all this new attention is really, really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is cool. Their, their like, uh, uh, fandom of Dungeons & Dragons is so, like, new and pure. It's always like, oh, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> you know? It's wonderful. It's yeah. wonderful. And and uh, and Mark Humes, you know, you guys have been working with uh, yeah. him. Like, I've known him for, gosh, 10, 12, no, 14 years. We were both, like, like across the pond pen pals. We met at a convention years ago because of cosplay and general, you know, video game anime nerdery. And we would always, whenever one of us was in the other's country, we'd get together and just play D&D for the weekend. And then now here we are both somehow helming Dungeons and Dragons streams. It's just a really strange turn of events that nobody expected. That is bizarre. Yeah. And I don't think we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but you worked on uh, uh, There Will Be Brawl. Uh, which was a show that I was on the tail end of, of helping to produce at The Escapist. Uh, but it was blew my mind when I knew you from Critical Role and all your, your video game things. But it was like, wait a second, you were a creator on that? Yeah, it's been, it, the internet has its own very unique uh, historical lineage. That uh, <laughs> we have, It's really amazing to follow all these different people through the years and see where they've ended up and, you know, what things have taken off, which things haven't. And, and uh, yeah, I've... That was that was a labor of love. For those who don't know what the hell we're talking about, in, <laughs> in 2009, uh, 2008, 2009, I directed uh, and performed in a web series that was a very super low budget. It was my first real directorial debut. Oh, really? Uh, this, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'd, I'd never really been behind the camera before as a director. And uh, so it was a kind of live action film noir HBO crime drama version of the Nintendo Smash Brothers universe. So it was like a, a dystopian mushroom kingdom. Uh, you know, Princess Peach goes missing, of course, and Mario is the lost hero who can't find himself. So Luigi is the protagonist who has to go through the dark alleyed streets between the different mafia dons, uh, King DDD, Ganondorf, 
Bowser, you know, and try and find out what this mystery is about. And it takes itself super seriously, which is where a lot of the comedy comes from. It's, it's everyone's in ridiculous costumes and makeup and it just, it's, it is nothing but hard knocks. It fully invested in itself. And we had a great time doing it. I met some wonderful people that are still some of my closest friends today. And it nearly killed me. And when all of a sudden dead, I made a grand total of negative $4,000 on the project. But, uh, but yeah, internet video is not necessarily the most lucrative thing if, uh, uh, if it doesn't catch on. That was, that was always yeah. the hard part. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love the hard boiled, you know, Luigi kind of going through the motions. He was, he, I felt like he was the moral center of that whole story and was trying yeah. to do what was right in a, in a world that was broken. Uh, and you're right. HBO crime driver. I never like put it together, but it did feel like a, uh, a, sopran- a Sopranos in a, uh, uh, you know, Mushroom Kingdom. We, we, we tried to, we definitely overreached our budget and capabilities a number of times, but we didn't really care. Right. And uh, somehow it, somehow it came together. Each episode kept getting progressively longer somehow. We were like, oh, we'll just shoot this other, you know, everyone on YouTube, especially at the time, was like three to five minutes. We're like, nah, our last episode's going to be a half an hour long. Sorry, right. guys. And that last, <laughs> if I remember correctly, that last episode took like six months to produce or something. It was like we had all the ones in the cadence. And we're like, we're still waiting for the finale. And then it came, it was, right? It wasn't quite six months behind. It was it was definitely about a month behind. Okay. But uh, that's because I was also editing it and doing half the post. And, and uh, playing my... and playing Ganondorf, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, I played the villain Ganondorf in the series, so it was it was a very, very everyone was wearing many hats and and you know no, no one was making any money on it. We were all doing it just for passion and friendship. So it was it was the it was the very epitome of uh, blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think you know? And, and I'm sure at that time that felt like that was the biggest project in the world and how it was all falling apart and blah blah. blah. But did you ever think that like? you know, the, the, the weekly D and D game would be the thing that so many people would know you by. God, never, never. Like the D and D has always been my, it's been my refuge. It's been my, my creative safe space. And, uh, and it's what got me into acting. It's what got me into so many elements of my life. So to me, it was a very important thing that was t- at home. And so when we were asked to do the stream, you know, we, we had to have a lot of talks about it. We were like, I don't know, like, are we comfortable with this? Is it going to work? I don't want it to feel different for us. I don't want to feel like we're having to perform for an audience. We want to still keep this magic of the game that we have for ourselves, but I guess invite other people in. And the things that kind of pushed me over the edge to say yes for it was, one, we wanted to to show a generation of gamers that maybe don't have an idea of how role-playing games really work. Mm-hmm. You know, don't have an example of like, oh, it's it's not that hard. I can do this. And so I, I wanted to, to put a show out there that people could watch and be like, oh, Okay, I get it. So that's how D and D works. I can play that. Uh, and secondly, eventually try and tap into the audience to dispel the myth that dungeon mastering is impossible. Mm. You know, I grew up in that uh, long fifteen-year uh, stretch of, of, for me at least, of gaming where everyone was like, "Well, we all want to play, but nobody wants to dungeon master." And I wanted to try and somehow dispel that and, and offer tips and tricks and try and get people excited about the other side of the screen. And so we decided to go ahead and do the show uh, and give it about six weeks. And uh, and now now we're on our 106th or 7th episode. That's I don't even insane. know. It's totally crazy. Insane. And that's, that's funny because, you know, uh, as D&D being the escape from, from the entertainment world, I think that was very similar to uh, Deborah Ann Wall. I spoke to her last week and she was saying like, you know, she's obviously a working actress and is, you know, all in the, the thick of, of producing shows like Daredevil and Defenders and all that. Um, 
But D&D to her, at least for the last five years, was, was, was just an escape, and she wasn't sure she wanted to make it you know, a job uh, before she was thinking about doing uh, Force Grey, Lost City of Omu. Um, so, yeah, did, did you get a sense of that when, when she came in the room, or, or did she just yeah. jump right into it? Well, she jumped right into it, but but I think one Joe definitely primed her mm. uh, on that. He he does that. He's 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 my favorite uh, muscle man when it comes to get your shit together and role play. Uh, I've I, it's wonderful. Anybody who has any sort of doubt or or trepidation, he's like, no, seriously, you'll be fine. And then kind of gives him a nudge, and it's great. Yeah, um, hard to turn that are, down when it's someone like Joe Manganiello being like, well, yeah, no, yeah, go play. And you're like, okay. <laughs> Physically imposing person telling you to go play D and D. Yeah, you say yes. <laughs> um, but no, I, it's funny when we were maybe a year into the show, Sam Ringel, one of our players, his wife, who's a, a really talented uh, director of photography for film and television, uh-huh. had worked on a project with Deborah, and they had talked about D and D on set. And Deborah would just kind of come out in some interviews about her love of D and D. Yeah. So Sam was like, we should get Deborah on the show as a guest. I'm like, well, let me look it up. And I read about some of her interviews. I was like, okay, she's legitimately a fan of the game and, and, and loves the idea of playing. And that's the kind of person I would be, you know, I would be willing to have as a guest on the show. Mm-hmm. So we reached out to her and she declined with an email saying just that, that this is something very personal to her. And I guess she watched an episode and paid attention to Twitch chat and saw how <laughs> aggressive and intense it could be. And that, that kind of, you know, that, that that's a rough experience for anybody. So, uh, I, I, as soon as I saw a response, I was like, I totally understand. I've been in that position, not a worry at all. Um, thank you so much. And if you ever change your mind, you know, but I, I totally get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was, I was very excited that when, when she decided to come on for Force gray that, uh, because it was a little more controlled space and it was with people that she knew, uh, that she could feel comfortable playing the game how she wants to and not be worrying about that perpetual internet, you know, torch and pitchfork squad that occasionally shows up. <laughs> right, right, right. So what was it like, uh, uh, you know, integrating her into Force gray? Cause you had done, uh, I guess seven episodes of the of, of the previous show with a different mm-hmm. you know group of cast with Chris Hardwick starting it out and then uh, the introduction of Brian Posehn's character and then we added uh, Dylan Sprouse characters Tyrol Tall Guy and uh, Emily Vita Gordon uh, for uh, the last episode yeah. um, and then adding two new characters you know how, how did it feel you know uh, uh, as having a cohesive whole here for for the second season. Oh, I mean, it was it's freeing for a second season because you already have the premise established. Right. And you get to play a little more in that space. And you guys had given me some of the uh, material for the uh, for Chult and, and some of the adventure elements. So it was just kind of this this very cool moment of, OK, what can I build in this space that would be unique? And I want not really spoil too much for the book, but also, you know, be a good tale for these adventurers. And uh, so it's great. We had some returning casts. You always want some comfortable people there who can kind of help usher the newer folks in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I really enjoy the process of bringing people into D&D who have never played before. It's a, it's a wonderful spark, a singular moment in each player for their first game when all of a sudden they get it and you watch their kind of imagination open, open up and they can be like, I, I can try anything. <laughs> And you're like, yes, yes, you get it. You know, I love that moment. And but it's also it can be a little awkward and you have to kind of finagle a bit and and, uh, you know, nudge along. And because of the email I had with Deborah, I was worried that she would be uncomfortable in that space a little bit, you know, and I was like prepared and expecting to kind of, you know, bring her and some of the new players in to be a little more uh, join in with the old school folks a little bit. Right. Um, that was not at all what happened. Deborah came in swinging. She knew her character well. She like out of the gate just owned it. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, 
you're my favorite kind of player. This is fantastic. So no, she was she was an absolute delight and uh, and brought a really, really cool, interesting edge to the group that I think uh, our more lighthearted first season kind of lacked, if that makes any sense. Like she right. she definitely had this this. And as you'll see in the episodes, like not she has a, a, a little more of an intensity and uh, a drive to accomplish that I think is you need at least one person in each group like that or you'll end up going in circles. <laughs> right. You need like an instigator or a, uh, a, a someone who can drive the plot forward and not just laugh at it. Right. Exactly. And so like between her and Joe, we were we were pretty solid on on people that were eager to to lead to the next bit or or do what it took to seek the information they required. It was it was a lot of fun. Did you get a sense that each uh, of the people there had a different play style and did that did that help or, you know, was that your job to kind of try and make them all feel like they were they were all feeling, uh, you know, that, that their character had something to do? I mean, uh, both, I'd say. I mean, every, you know, when you bring a different group of people from different game tables, their play styles are going to differ. And part of your job as a dungeon master is to kind of be open to listening to what it is they're trying to accomplish and how they want to play their game. Right. You don't want to shut them down and tell them, no, you're doing it wrong. Play my way. You know, you kind of have to meet them in the middle. So it's been really fun to kind of watch each person's focus, whether it be, you know, comedic takes on existing circumstances. You know, Utkarsh is really good about taking a scenario and and finding the comedic beat, but still being the action hero that he sees Hitch to be. Um, we have Joe, who knows knows this character really well, who is a, a forceful personality, who will do what it takes to get what he wants. Uh, and and at the same time, he respects softer narrative moments, and it makes this interesting dichotomy for his character than you'd expect from this very gruff and aggressive Dragonborn. Mm. Um, then you have. You know, Brian Fussain, who, as we saw in the last season in this one, uh, he is he is so fast with the comedy and has this great kind of uh, abrasive quality that he's given with uh, with Penelope that that just uh, 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 sorry, Penelope, what's her name? Uh, uh, Calliope. Calliope, thank you. Calliope. Calliope, sorry. Um, <clears throat> the Calliope. First off, just the duality of having a you know half-elf female bard with Brian Fussain's voice is just a wonderful <laughs> experience in its own right. But he's owned it more in this season and definitely plays up elements uh, that I don't think he's I think he told me afterward. He has never really played a character like this before. He usually plays the kick in the door fighters and it forced him into a, a, a out of his comfort zone as a player. And knowing that it was really fun to watch him kind of step into that role and take over elements that involve the charisma and taking the scene and you know driving his personality through to victory. So, you know, these are all little facets that. That as a dungeon master, when you watch them happen, when you watch the player kind of take hold and step out of their comfort zone or or take their play style and tailor it halfway to yours. And all of a sudden they all come together as a cohesive group that now, you know, they know how to push forward together. It's 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 that to me is the uh, the reward for a session plan. Right. Yeah. No, and that is a good reward. And it's it's it's. I, I, I do love that when when players go outside of the <laughs> the norm that they like to do, because it's so freeing. You get to do, you know, like you can, even in playing in Dungeons and Dragons where you, you know, you can do anything, you can get into certain ruts where you're like, I've been playing the same, you know, person and I know his ins and outs or I know her ins and outs and I know what he's, she's good at. And, and, you know, after 106 episodes of, a, you know, or sessions of the, the thing, like you can be like, oh, let's try something different. Let's do, let's do different things. And uh, I think you guys with Critical Role have been doing that with doing the one-offs and, and, and doing different projects here and there. 
Um, but it's interesting to see, uh, you know, uh, the the actors do that for this because they yeah. all have their own. You know, Brian's got his podcast. He's got Nerd Poker, where he, he does have a much different kind of more comedic friends getting together and playing Dungeons and Dragons feel than than the drama that uh, that that Deborah Joe and, and and you can kind of bring to it in this. Yeah, and 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 let me not <laughs> let me not, definitely not leave out Dylan Sprouse. Yeah, who who uh, he, he has he brings a quality to the table that I absolutely adore in players, which is the the thinking outside the box player. Mm. The person that doesn't isn't driven by the surface read of whatever a spell's capability is or an ability's, you know, write-up is. He'll see that and go like, okay, now let me let my imagination find a weird way to use this. And it keeps me on my toes, but it also just makes it a very unique narrative each time that he brings one of his skills to the table or he takes charge of a challenge. And uh, we, we saw it a bit when he played with us at the Egyptian, and you'll see a bunch of it throughout this season. He has some golden moments with his druid, with a uh, uh, Tyrol Tall guy, where you just you think to yourself, I I wouldn't have necessarily thought to do that. That's really weird and awesome, and right. kind of kind of really saved the moment, you know? Yeah, so, like it was uh, super effective. Uh, yeah, I remember I at that. the Egyptian theater, what, didn't he turn into, he was a smaller creature and then he turned into a porcupine inside someone's face? Inside someone's face, yes. And they, they failed the saving throw and detonated their head. Oh, God. I, I, I have like nightmares of that image still in my head. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, Pinhead from Hellraiser, like just, but with porcupine spines coming out, it's terrible. Yeah, he summoned a, a, a large toad uh, to be up on a rised area within their final like boss battle area, and it uses tongue to grab him, and he could swing like an Indiana Jones whip. Like that's the kind of ingenuity <laughs> that makes D and D moments history that make you remember them the rest of your life. Right. So I love it. I, I love. I loved having him on board for more than just that one onstage show he did. Uh, he's he's a great addition to the Force Grey team. It is. It's it's really fun to watch, and I haven't. I've I've heard rumors that he gets even more creative in this season. Although I haven't seen the episodes, both Nathan and and Bart are like, "Whoa, wait till you tell me what." what <laughs> so I can't wait for that. It's fun. It's a good time. So we're gonna debut the uh, the first two episodes uh, tonight, actually, uh, for those of you who are watching on the Twitches. Uh, but on July thirty first, it will already be out. Uh, for those of you listening uh, uh, here on the Dragon Talk podcast. Uh, and uh, so, what do you do? You happen to remember what happens in those the first like hour or so you guys were recording? Oh wait, maybe we could talk a little bit about how we recorded it. So this yeah. is this was filmed over what two days in LA? Two days we shot in Los Angeles. They had a uh, an awesome studio set up, kind of uh, south of Los Angeles, with a a living room uh, build, which was a little more comfortable than the first season, which was kind of like a like a nouveau basement feel. Um, I, I, I like feeling like I'm playing in someone's living room, you know, it just kind of brings it home for me. So, yeah. uh, the set was great. The, the crew was great. And, uh, yeah, it was, it's very interesting to show up, uh, as, as a dungeon master, when you have so many things in your mind that you've had to remember and prepare for, and you're still calculating and trying to get enough ready for whatever weird things your players are going to try and do, and then have somebody walk over and be like, Oh, I need to get your mic on you. And, uh, you know, uh, you'll be sitting there. There's the light. Uh, make sure you don't, you know, it's it's just it's a weird combination of having to concentrate on both at the same time. Yeah. As both a performer and like the performer who's playing this game. Right. Yeah. And I and I, I feel really bad for the uh, the crew that had to deal with the fact of me forgetting everything they told me because 
because once you're in the moment, you're in the moment, you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're in your imagination. Your friends are playing make believe and rolling dice. And I'm sure at the end of each day there was, you know, two or three sound guys just like shaking their heads going, ah, oh, Jesus. So, well, I doubt they were doing that. I'm sure that, you know, if they're good sound guys and or D and D fans, I'm sure they were just happy to be there watching, like, watching the magic happen. I hope. <laughs> Ryan, my sound guy, just looked at me with, and, and shook his head. He's <laughs> See, like, what I'm talking about. they hate it all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, yeah, was it was it so as a, when you're doing that and this is something that, you know, uh, uh, people who have only really done streams of dungeon mastering can really kind of answer. Like, does it does it shut off for you like the 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 cameras and the mics or or, or does it take you take a while before that to happen? And then you, are you just in the game? Like, yeah. It takes a little bit. Um, you know, it is, especially if it's not in your usual home setting. You know, you, it, most game groups, once you have a groove going, you'll have like a place that you usually play, whether it be like at a cafe or a game store, or a certain person's house or a few different people's houses. Mm-hmm. Um, going to like a set, it, it's a little it's a little strange, a little jarring at first. But I think the importance is to make sure that everyone at the table can see each other and that you can still maintain that that connection of storytelling that makes the magic of, of role-playing games in D&D. Um, so I, I, it does take a little bit getting used to, but not as long as you think. And then once you're there, once you're in it, they all disappear. I forget the cameras are there every week. I've been doing this for a long time. And, yeah. you know, as, as soon as we're all at the table, we're all poking each other and bullshitting each other and, and you know, just being our stupid friend selves. And then the show starts, we finish our announcements. And then once we dive in, it's just us at the table rolling dice and telling a story. And we kind of, Forget the cameras there until I'm looking at the clock, going, "Oh, we should probably take a pee break, shouldn't we?" Okay, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a, it's a unique juggle, but uh, but yeah, it's it's easy to get lost in it. I have that. I still have that very distinct memory of Brian Pasane taking the pee break at the Egyptian Theater. Uh, we 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 what we played for about two and a half hours. Yeah, <laughs> and I think he broke character. Was like, I just really need to pee, and he like yep. <laughs> sprinted off of the stage to the nearest bathroom uh, as soon as he took that break. I'll never forget just, that. It was amazing. I, I really think that Wizards is, is, is a lost opportunity without expanding into their catheter market. For, <laughs> you know, har- hardcore D&D gamers. I'm just saying, guys. I got my wife one of those uh, female urinal things for, uh, for, for when we went on uh, vacation. She's yet to use it. So I feel like that's the same thing. If ever, anyone ever got me a catheter, I'd be like, ha, ha, ha. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> but then every now and then in those long game sessions, you'd think back to that little bookcase that you have it on as a joke and go, well, yeah. no, actually, please, nobody ever do that, please. <laughs> this, is, this podcast is full of bad advice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, congratulations on uh, your campaign setting getting uh, uh, kickstarted, right? I think uh, what, it, it didn't get kickstarted. Uh, I was lucky enough that uh, Green Ronin approached us a year ago to uh, to produce it. I... It wasn't something I ever set out to do. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it was it was literally just a small little homebrew world that I built for uh, a one shot that then turned into a campaign. So I just expanded and expanded it. And and when Green Ronin approached us about doing the campaign guide, I was like, uh, I mean, sure. I've never written anything like this before. Okay, I've got lots so, of notes that might be able to read. Yeah, they're all shorthand for me and <laughs> for nobody else to really read. And okay, so so yeah, th- uh, thank you. Uh, it's it it was a really amazing experience, a really uh, difficult experience in some ways, but I learned a lot through it, and it was it was wonderful to kind of take the notes that I had, flesh them out, and then expand through the little open spaces in between to to build this 
wholly realized continent and then present it with enough uh, optional abilities, rules and and story hooks that you know any gamer, whether new or old, could draw something and some inspiration from this book and make it useful. That was that was my main goal. Nice. And I bet fans had always been like, I want to be able to play in your worlds. You know, they, and now they finally get the chance to, to at least, you know, feel like they, they, they had all the hooks and all the lore and all the history, you know, at their fingertips. Yeah, that, that was kind of the intent behind it. And I've been I've been so scared, <laughs> like leading up to the release of the book, because I mean, there was so many, so many great settings that exist out there from like Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, you know, Dark Sun, Eberron. You know, if all of these you know, Greyhawk, the original Greyhawk, like these, so many of these well-realized D&D settings, um, many of which were designed to be a setting, you know, from the very inception, right. it was like, let's create a unique and interesting setting for players to dive into. This was retroactively building a setting based on a, a world that I'd built to be a, you know, initially, initially just to be a pretty vanilla fantasy D&D world for my players who'd never played before. Yeah, you like on purpose made it so that it was didn't feel too alien from from other fantasy out there, right? Yeah, yeah, because because for a lot of the people in my game, they, it was their first foray into it, and you know they they'd seen Lord of the Rings, they were fans of general fantasy and fantasy video games, so I wanted to make it something familiar but still unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why Taldore, the, this this one book, it's the it's the youngest of all the continents. It's it's the most classic fantasy of them all. Um, it, its history is not quite as long and as, as in depth as the other parts of the world. And the thought process was, as I was developing the world, that if this book does well and we decide we want to, you know, develop more in the future for the other continents, the other continents I could get a little more unique with, I can build their themes to be a little different. So you, you don't feel like it's just the same type of fantasy book over and over again, you know, each one has different, different genre themes to it. And uh, mixes up some of the the cultural and and societal elements of the of the Taldori books. So I'm, I'm I was pretty pretty excited and scared at the same time to kind of put this out there in the world and was was waiting for the slings and arrows. But people seem to be you know pretty pretty happy with it so far. And I'm I'm, I'm definitely breathing a sigh of relief. <laughs> nice. Well, congratulations. I think it looks awesome. And uh, I haven't been able to delve too much into it, but I can't wait to flip through those pages and actually feel it for 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 reals. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and I like, and you don't sell yourself short because a lot of those settings that you mentioned, you know, like Greyhawk and and Forgotten Realms and and Dragonlance, even they occurred through play. I mean, they were, yeah. you know, the Gary Gygaxes and Dave Arnesons and and Ed Greenwood's homebrew worlds at first, you know, and they took other people to to jump into them to to kind of make them as fully realized as they are now. So it's very similar, you know. And now, yeah. that the funny thing is, is Gosh, you could do that for other people. I mean, you can you're going to inspire people to play in in your world, and you know, you as the uh, I, I guess you, you you'd be the 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 founder of of the, this whole setting. You know, you'd be able to be like, all right, well, that's canon now, and that's part of the world, and that you know, yeah, that's, that's pretty so fantastic. Weird. That's so weird to me. Yeah. I, it's all it's all still very fresh. I'm, <laughs> I'm still and and let me let me not forget to to thank uh, J- James Hake who who helped me tremendously on the book. He was my a co-writer on a, on a number of aspects of it. He's extremely talented. I know you guys have had him on the podcast before. Yeah, and he's a great he's, guy. Shout out to James. James, Rock you're you're phenomenal. He saved my ass on that <laughs> book because um, just you know, there's only so much time in a day, and uh, between you know voiceover, which is still my my full career, and then all the critical role prep on the side, and then now the book. I was I was 
very quickly rocketing to insanity or an early grave if I continued to wield it on myself. And I mean, his, his writing style, uh, is, is, is smooth and clever and he knew the world really well. And as soon as he came on and started giving me, you know, elements of his writing, I was like, Oh, thank you. Thank you. You are exactly what I need on this. And his, his contributions to this book have been humongous and I hope to continue to work with him on future projects. So thank you so much, James. Way to go, James. I can't wait. Uh, that's, that's pretty awesome. But definitely when we talked to him, it was like, oh, it was the right place at the right time. Uh, but uh, it's super great to hear stories like that. Right place, right time. But also I'm a big fan of the, uh, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Right. And he was very prepared and was very skilled at what he did, had the right attitude, just positive and wanting to build and create together. And that to me is, is most of it really. So uh, he, don't don't let him sell himself short either. <laughs> well, mad props uh, in any case, and yeah, I can't wait to to see you know uh, uh, you know Gen Con. I mean, I'm sure there's some. Well, maybe not this time around, but maybe for for other big uh, conventions, you'll see people being like, "We're gonna play in Taldorai," you know. Like, I hope so. Come I'm join excited. our game. That's that's pretty amazing, man. It's so weird to me. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, did you want uh, me to write the novels set in Taldorai? Do you want that? <laughs> Uh, oh God, that's such a great, like, yeah, right? I don't even, I can't, there's too many, we'll see. Like Matt, Co- Matt Colville is also doing the comic books, right? I didn't even think is. about that. I just remembered. He is. It's, it's, it's been really interesting. Like this whole critical roles phenomenon. And I say phenomenon because none of us planned for it. None of us knew any of this was going to happen. And, and there's this, this continual agreeance that we have as, as all of us who are involved in it to not ever let that phenomenon overshadow the joy of what this is to us and the community. And it is the community. We're, we're, we're but a game, but the community has risen up and really become the star of this whole interesting, weird thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so everything we've been doing has been reactionary. The campaign guide was reactionary to be running approaching us because there was a, a demand for it. The comic book people have been clamoring for it for forever about, you know, ways to tell the stories before we started streaming. So we had two years of home gaming that nobody got a chance to see. And now that they're invested in this world and these characters, they want to see, those early stories. And so we're, we decided to maybe pursue a comic and Koval, who uh, me and Liam had worked on with the game evolve and become good gaming friends with. Uh, I love his writing style. His dialogue is incredible. And his understanding of the genre, his understanding of D and D, it was just, it was too perfect a fit for me to not ask him if he could. So me and Liam had lunch with him and, and he said, yeah, I'd love to. And so that was a, huge match made in heaven nice and and then we had uh artists to knock down and we had a bunch of artists that were recommended to us through legendary and other sources and very talented people but for us our our characters it's about the the personality it's about the conversations it's about the 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 expressions more than it is the big muscles and dangerous weapons um and we couldn't find any artists that really got you know, the fantasy style and the personality in there. Mm. And we kept looking at all this amazing fan art in the community that really kind of captured the look we wanted. And we kept giving these examples of fan art to the legendary going like, well, more like this. And eventually we're like, no, 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 let's just, let's just bring one of these guys in. So, you know, we always want to try and lift the community up and, and bring people uh, into this crazy phenomenon and give them a chance to shine. And so we were very lucky that the artist Olivia Sampson, who is one of our fans of the show and had done a lot of fan art for uh, up in the community before, was interested in in doing this. She'd never done a comic book before. She she was kind of asking us, "How do I do this?" And we're like, "We don't we don't know. Talk to this person. They can sh- maybe show you." And so it's just been this really cool collaborative experience of all of us trying this for the first time together, and it's turning out 
uh, incredible. And I'm, I'm really excited for you guys to check it out. Nice. Do we have a timetable on when, when that's going to be out yet? I'm waiting to hear back the specifics on that. Um, but this, I like know this year, next year? That we're, we're definitely going to get it uh, probably out digitally this year. Okay, uh, good. At, least, at, at least the number of issues and the, with the long-term uh, plan of shortly after the, these first six, maybe a, a graphic novel. Uh, collectible okay, afterwards because cool. because I'm, I'm a graphic novel collector i need i need to have the physical thing in my hand yeah i'm like that too i I'm, i do wait for trades for sure something about mm-hmm. the uh uh yeah having that book on the shelf that makes me uh which reminds me i still need to get the second the third rat queens trade i need to i, I, I need to i, I have a uh, chris Lindsay was gonna let me borrow it i need to bug him again um but that is super cool, and I like that you got in uh, a fan artist to do that. Uh, I'm super fascinated by the comic book genre, too, because I'm not uh, – I wouldn't say, like, I'm a comics fan at all. Like, I, I never had that part of my fandom when I was growing up. Like, I was always fantasy and, and, and uh, uh, gaming, but never never really comics. There was no comic book shop in my, na- in my neighborhood. So mm. I was always super, like, fascinated by it as I got more into it in my adult life uh, – and it wasn't until God, it was only like two or three years ago where I realized that like when you write a comic book, you write it like you do like a movie script. You know, like there's like here's the you know, here's who's saying this, who's saying this when, and then you have like kind of directions of like this is what I want the art to be like, or you know that like that kind of thing. And that totally clicked for me. I was like, oh, of course it would be, and that's why so many comic book writers go on to TV or you know vice versa, and they go back and forth between them somewhat easier than you would say other genres. You know, so yeah, that's it's, super it's, fascinating. It's, it's a it's a very very uh, familiar process either way. Um, what I love about comics too is is you know whereas in film it's the writer the director and then you have the uh, you know the art department you have the the um, the oh, what's for looking for yeah you have the actors you have um, all the various costuming you have all There's these different so many different departments that have to come to together. together yeah yeah and um, in comics you have like three or four people that do all those things in that space. And so you have the opportunity to tell incredible stories, um, and a much smaller budget. Mm. Um, but also as one of the wonders of sequential art and why I love it is it allows you to kind of fill the, in between the panels, the, uh, uh, the, the whole theory behind comics. I love it. If you haven't had the chance to read understanding comics by Scott McCloud, highly recommend it. It's an incredible book that basically breaks down the history of the meaning of, and the real strengths of sequential art and comics as a storytelling art form. It's wonderful. I love that book. And actually when I got that as a teenager, I kind of, Oh, it was an aha moment for, for comics for me. It's so good. a little bit of weird trivia for you. Yeah. Um, back in like 2001, I did a lot of community theater and I became friends with this woman named Ivy Mm-hmm. Uh, who I did like three or four shows together. And so she started inviting me over to her house for game night every Friday. And so we'd all play games every Friday for like two years. And uh, I got to get to, know, get to know her and her family, her kids, uh, Winter and Sky, and her husband, Scott, who I didn't realize two years later, it was Scott McCloud. It was that Scott McCloud. What? And I was like, oh, okay. Hi. I didn't know that. We've been friends this whole time just being board game nerds. Um, That's but, so uh, funny. He put out a book uh, about two and a half years ago called The Sculptor. Uh-huh. It's a wonderful, wonderful graphic novel. It's it's like his magnum opus. It's beautiful. I, I recommend reading that if you get the chance. But uh, sure. but I actually I modeled the lead for that for him. We did a series of a photo shoots over the period of three years um, for reference for him as he did the comic. And I played David, the main character in that. So you, as you if you get a chance to read the book, if you look through, you'll see little little bits of me kind of squeak through the art here and there <laughs> well, that's and be cool. like, 
it's a it's a it's a fun little little bit of trivia for the folks out there. That is pretty awesome, man. You're uh, yeah, you got your fingers in so many different pies. It's kind of it's kind of nuts. It's weird. <laughs> I, I I should sleep soon. <laughs> how how is that been going? How are you okay? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. No, I, I I joke about it, but I I I've I'm better than I did last year. I think la- last year got a little intense. I was. When you when you spend most of your adult life living as an actor, yeah, you live a very meager lifestyle, and you know, paycheck to paycheck, taking odd jobs to do whatever it takes to still live, yeah. Um, and you say yes to everything. And these past couple of years have afforded a lot of wonderful opportunity that I'm so so thankful for. Um, but it's hard to break that habit of not saying yes to everything, yeah. And if you say yes to too many things, you get stretched too thin and you begin to burn out. And so that was a big worry of mine. I had to teach myself when to say no, when to when to really concentrate on self uh, care and, and schedule time just for me and Marisha and to be a couple. We have a wedding coming up in a few months and we have to make sure that we don't, you know, work ourselves to the bone leading up to that. So right. uh, last year got a little hairy, but we're doing we've learned some lessons and we're doing better now. <laughs> that is good. That is good. Cause it's hard. It's a hard transition. I think, you know, maybe just because I listen to a lot of podcast interviews with celebrities, uh, or people who recently get celebrity or they're talking about that transition from, you know, being the out of work actor into, Oh crap, I have money now. What do I do? Yeah. Um, you know, or like I have so many people who have demands on my time is actually more of the problem. And, uh, yeah, it's always that, that hard transition of like, you know, it's basically like, you know, you have to be in a chrysalis for a little bit and then you break out and you're like, okay, now I'm a butterfly and, and, and be, almost create like a different uh, lifestyle, right? Yeah, very much so. And like me, one of, one of the things, one of the hardest things for me to ever do is disappoint people. Yeah. Like I, it's just been a, a serious like deep emotional problem I have with disappointing other people. And you have to learn and realize that you can't, one, you can't make everyone happy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you will disappoint people and that's just how it is. You just have to do your best to make it respectful and help them understand that it, it's just circumstantial. And so that's been a little big lesson for me is how to, how to distinguish between those choices and express to those people that I have to say no to that, you know, I'm only doing so for my own health. <laughs> right. And that, I mean, that's a very good quality for a dungeon master uh, to make sure everyone else is happy and you're not disappointing anyone. <laughs> True, but but also don't forget if you're ever burning out as a dungeon master, talk to your players about that. I did I said it in one one of my GM tips. Like it's okay to express if you're starting to get a little tired, a little worn, a little burned oh, absolutely, out. Absolutely, yeah. Um, because if you if you keep pushing through that, you might eventually really burn your love of the game for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I've I've met and known people that have done that. So you know, players be. I implore you to be open and respectful if every that conversation comes up and be be eager to maybe take a break from the campaign for a few months and one of you guys pick up the mantle and run a few one shots or run a short term game to let the GM play for a while and uh, let them let them rediscover their creative inspiration to get back on that horse. Yeah, because, I mean, Dungeon Masters need to play, too, every once in a while to, in order yeah. to, to know what it's like on the other side, but then also to exercise different muscles and, and, and to uh, uh, really, you know, get a full breath of, of what it is. So, yeah, that's a great idea. And do not be afraid to say that because I've known uh, plenty of Dungeon Masters who's like, nope, I'm not, I'm not going to play anymore. And you're like, what? What just happened? Everything, yeah. everything just stopped for whatever reason, you know? And um, I, I think it's great that, that uh, you and Marisha have been, you know, kind of finding your roles at, at Geek and Sundry even. Didn't she just say that she's a creative director there now? 
Yeah, she's been creative director for about seven months at Geek and Sundry, and, and it's been great. She, I mean, she she's such an ass kicker anyway. Like of of our relationship, you know, she she's the fighter, I'm the diplomat, um, and it's always been that way. She she defends my honor, and but she's also just such a great creative force, and she knows how to how to run uh, a production in a way that is firm, but also respectful. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't trample on people right. like a lot of people in the entertainment industry do to get things done. And, uh, and, and the rest of the creative team that came along with her to kind of sweep in and, and take helm that part of Geek and Sundry at the start of the year has been working really hard to try and really make it something, uh, special for, for the community that's been around us for so long, both us critical role and Geek and Sundry, the entire brand. Yeah. So I'm really, really proud of her. And she's been just kicking ass, man. She really is. And I respect, uh, that kind of production slash leadership style of, uh, always, you know, uh, focus on the product and making it good and making sure you don't have to, uh, cut people down in order to get you want. Just like you said, like, you know, I've been around Many a theater slash film <laughs> production in which the director throws chairs or, you know, something gets a little bit crazy and you're like, you don't need to do that. You can inspire and uh, get people to be creative um, in ways that doesn't feel uh, combative. Uh, yeah. And so I, that was my philosophy really going into Stream of Annihilation was to make sure that everybody knew that like this was – this was all about the community. This was all about everybody getting together. And, you know, there's always going to be problems and things won't always go exactly as you plan them. And you move on and you, you adapt and you change and you make sure everyone pushes forward with a smile on their face instead of, you know, you know, you, a frown or feeling like you were just talked down to, you know? And Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I think the key word you said there is, is inspire. Like that, that to me is, is the greatest uh, sign of good leadership is when a person leads through inspiration. Mm. You, 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 you push forward, you, 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 you know, set out challenges that are ahead and you work with your people to work on ways to solve those problems, those challenges, but you do so by inspiring other people to get there, you know, and, and, and it's, it's a conscious choice. You can, you can rule through fear, you can rule through inspiration. And I think, um, the people that, that run projects through fear, through intensity, through, through blame, they might, you know, get one thing done, but the rest of that team's going to burn out and leave. Yeah. And it's, it's those that, that lift those around them that, that continue to push that, that quality of all of us collaborating to make this happen. And that if, if, you know, tell me if it's too hard, but we, if we work hard together, we're going to be really proud of what's at the end of this. You know, that type of, of inspiring leadership is, is lasting. It's true. It is true. And I feel like you're, 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 you're subtweeting something that's happening in our world right now. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's on the brains of a lot of us, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, when I think you, you kind of lend that also to uh, Force Gray, you know, you kind of had that kind of feel of like, we're going to tell this story together. Obviously, you're not the, the leader of, of that group necessarily, but you are as far as leading the performance. Um, and well, uh, I think it comes through. Thank you. I, I think that that's the job of, a, of a, a dungeon master is not necessarily just to tell a tale, but to tell a story that allows you to elevate and inspire each player. You know, you're you're trying to, to build a narrative and and improvise a narrative in a lot of places um, that enables these other people to to make choices and feel invested, to feel involved and accomplished and feel like they have succeeded in some way as they set out to, you know, to, to win this tale. And, uh, it, it's your job to be conscious that each player at the table, 
has the opportunity to shine, that they have the opportunity to step up and make a difference. And at the end of it, the good games, the really good games, and I felt the same way at the end of, of Force Gray, each each player has the opportunity to really show what they can do, to to dive into a moment of, of laughter, to dive into a moment of, of sincerity, and to really... Uh, you know, rise up to be bigger heroes than they began with, and that's that's kind of the magic of D anD D, and and it was in, that's kind of why I, I love coming back and doing Force Great with you guys. <laughs> nice, cool. Well, thank you uh, so much for uh, for calling in and 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 talking. Uh, it's always great because we can. Get, I love that you and I will just dive into you know you know let's just talk about philosophy right now. We're like you know let's talk about <laughs> you know personal ways and, and did you read the message and you know <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Always a pleasure, man. Anytime. Awesome. Cool. Uh, where can people find out about uh, like the Taldorai source book or anything else you want to you know throw people at? Uh, you can find the uh, the, the Taldorai uh, campaign guide. Uh, it's going to be available in physical form at Gen Con at the Green Ronin booth. Otherwise, you can find it in game stores or for order in September, I believe. I think the pre-orders already closed, which mm-hmm. is a good sign. <laughs> um, and you can also see me uh, on. Critical Role every Thursday at 7 p.m. Pacific time on Geek at Sundry's Twitch. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Matthew Mercer on Twitter. And I think I think that's it. That's all. That's all really matters. That's right. And we got Force Gray coming up in one hour. Uh, if you're listening to this on the Twitch, uh, if not on the podcast, you should go watch it on Twitch. It's Twitch.tv/dnd. You can watch the video of this here interview as well as Force Gray episodes as they come out each Monday uh, at 5 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, cool. I think that's it, dude. Fantastic. All Thanks right. for having me, buddy. Well, am I going to see you at uh, in Providence? Uh, I don't know if I'll be. Th- I might be. When oh, is that? I think for Hascon. Hascon? Oh, yeah. No, I will see you there. Nice. Cool. All right. Well, we'll definitely be able to hang out then. Perfect. I'll see you then, buddy. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I wish uh, Shelly Mazanoba was here to talk to Matt so we could get more pointers on her Bert impression. Uh, but alas and alack, she was not. Uh, he's still a great guy to talk to. And, uh, gosh, now I'm so excited to watch more of Force Gray Lost City of Omu, uh, which will be coming very soon. Uh, and there's going to be more and more episodes coming and coming. So it's going to be really fantastic. Uh, if you guys want to ask me any questions on the Twitter, I am at Greg Tito. Uh, if you have any questions for Shelly, she's at Shelly Moo. Um, and again, you can watch episodes of this as well as tons of D&D content for Tomb of Annihilation, the storyline that is coming out on September 19th, wide everywhere. Uh, you can find out all about that on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash DND. And you can now, of course, subscribe to that channel for $4.99, not $5. It's $4.99. Very important that you realize that. Uh, and you can get some custom emotes as well as some fun badges uh, for your subscription. And we'll be adding more and more stuff to that as we go on. That's it for this edition of Dragon Talk. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week with some more fun stuff coming your way right about now. Next week.